you. So, you ready for this this morning? This is going to be good. This is going to be good. Why? Because the Word is always good. The Word is always good. I'm not always good, but the Word. As long as I can just, you know, cough out a few scriptures, we know it's going to be good because His Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the thoughts that we have down to our very inner being and really affect us in very profound ways. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray this every week, and we mean it. Lord, we cannot move in the spiritual dimension in the realm without the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, you were were very clear when you said we needed the Holy Spirit and that the Father was going to send the Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of, of sin and righteousness and judgment, Lord. And so we need that in our own lives. Even if we already know you, we need the guidance of the Spirit to illuminate your word for us that we might be wise stewards of these little tiny brief lives that we have. I think sometimes we imagine it's forever, but Lord, they really are like, we are like the grass that withers and is gone tomorrow, but not our souls. So Lord, we thank you for your word. It's a, it abides forever. So help us and guide us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've uh, been working through this idea of times and seasons in our lives We've seen it nationally, we've seen it in the life of Israel, we've seen it in some of the biblical characters, but it all applies to us as well, to us as a church. Where are we going? What time and season is it for us? How about our nation, our cities, uh, this Coachella Valley, and then obviously us as individuals? So we're learning through this process how God operates in his economy called the kingdom of heaven. And we're learning both positively from David, and also we're learning how not to proceed through King Saul. And so that's where we're going to pick it up this morning, continue on this journey on trying to discern and become like the tribe of Issachar, one who could understand and discern the seasons and the times with a knowledge of what Israel should do, and in this case, what we should do. How do you proceed in life? Most of us are unaware. We think, well, I'm a Christian, I've gone to church my whole life, and then we don't really kind of think of it much in terms of that. But there are definitive seasons in your life, and if you're aware of them, God's much more able to work through you so that you can become fruitful. So I want you to go, if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to back up just a little bit and gain a little bit of insight into King Saul and his coronation as king. So for those of you who don't know, King Saul was the very first king ever appointed for Israel. Now you need to understand that God didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king and he was disappointed that they demanded a king. And so he gave them exactly what they wanted. Somebody who was good looking on the outside and that was one head taller than anybody else in Israel, the Bible says. I mean, that's like Yao Ming. You know, being a, for those of you who aren't NBA fans, and maybe you're not, but the Houston Rockets, I know we have some Houston folks here. Yao Ming, I remember sitting, I had courtside seats one time, and Yao Ming's legs were like that big around. That was just his calves. I said I could fit my whole body in one of his calves. It was unbelievable how huge he was. And, and, and he was about a head taller than a lot of the other guys, and those are some tall guys. Well, such was the case with Saul. He didn't like in some ways, he didn't want it. He didn't want to be called by God. He didn't, he didn't want it. But there was something very specific here in verse 24 I want us to look at. Samuel had come down and began, he hadn't told him yet that he was going to be king, but in verse 24, I think it gives us a lot of insight into God discerning a specific appointed moment for King Saul. It says, then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. What was happening here? Samuel had gathered about 30 different people, leaders, and they were going to come around and begin to talk to Saul about where he was going. And they were, he wasn't going to do it graphically at the first. He was just going to begin to show that in some ways he was going to give the portion of the animal that was reserved for him, Samuel, the priest, and he was going to give that to Saul in front of these 30 leaders, these important men. And as a result, it was, uh, the next part is very insightful for us. And then Samuel sa- said, here is what has been reserved. In other words, there's something that's been reserved for you. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Until the appointed time. 
since I said I've invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now, a lot of this was just ceremonial. It was something very significant, though, in the eyes of those who were around, these very 30, very important people. And here was Samuel, the priest, the, a judge, the final judge for Israel, after having lived under the judges for many years with God as their primary king. No, their only king. But they said, we want to be like the nations. We want somebody to lead us. And God said to Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being God. And so he said, I'm going to give them what they want. And so here was Samuel transferring the authority in this kind of ceremonial moment, transferring it now to Saul. But the insightful part of this that I saw this week, and I had this underlined in my Bible, but I'd never really thought of it with the with the context that we're talking about it, it was a particular appointed moment in Saul's life. Okay, Saul, you're about to enter a season in which you're going to lead. You're going to enter a season where you have the opportunity to be fruitful. There was only one problem. Well, he, he was not ready for the task. Well, did you know that there is a season appointed for you, for you to lead in whatever gifting God has given you, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Speaking to each one at that church at Ephesus, he goes, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. In other words, there is an appointed time which God comes down and he says, okay, now is the time. Now is the season. I do recognize very definitive seasons in my life. I, I, I recognize seasons of preparation and then I began to re- recognize seasons of beginning to kind of cut my teeth and, and preparatory seasons and then other seasons and even the life of this church was a season I didn't see coming but a season that I was aware of and I, a season that I was hopeful and embraced even though I didn't think I could I didn't think we'd I'd had any idea how to proceed you know but it was a trust in God and a recognition of times and seasons what season and I'm going to keep asking you this through this as we go through this what season are you in how are you connected to various people that they're going to need what you have to accomplish the task collectively in the season that you've been called well now is the time and so they all gathered at Mizpah and Mitzpah, they, they decided now is going to be the coronation of Saul. And now I want you to go forward to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Unfortunately, as they began to look for Saul, where did they find him? Well, so they therefore inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? Where's Saul? I mean, now's his moment. Now is his moment. And the Lord said, behold, he is hiding himself in the baggage. Here's the guy, one head taller than anybody else. Here's his moment. It's an appointed time for him. It's an appointed time. Where is he? I mean, now, now's the time. Everybody's gathered here. And in fact, the very name, Mitzpah, means watchtower. Now's the point. We need somebody who's going to watch out for our interests. Some, a moment in time. And we're, but where's Saul? <laughs> Where did Saul go? He was hiding in the baggage. Can you imagine? I'm going to ask you this morning. If God were to call you at an appointed time to walk into the specificity of a calling that he has for you in this season, where would you be? Would you be on the watchtower prepared even though you said, well, I don't know if I can do that. God needs people that say, I can't do this. That's what he needs. But he needs people that says, but you can do it. Remember David's heart when he spoke back and, and Goliath was challenging? And he didn't see it as him versus Goliath. He said he's taunting the armies of the living God. Do you see that? Do you frame it like that in your life? Well, God asked me just to share Christ with my neighbor. God asked me to invite my neighbor over and just, just have him over for dinner, but I know a conversation may come up, or we've got some friends coming in this weekend, and we're going we're gonna to bring them to church with us, but we, they, I don't know if we can do that. I, I, that'll be uncomfortable. It'll, it'll maybe bring some tension into the relationship. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're concerned about that, and yet God would ask, isn't it me who's doing this? It's not you. I'm not looking for somebody who can do it. I'm looking for somebody who's willing to allow me to do it through them. And that was the case. Now I want you to go to 1 Samuel 18. It's where we left off last week. 
But with that as a backdrop, we begin to discern some things about Saul's character. This is, I got to be honest with you, there is probably no more relationship in terms of a juxtaposition between David and Saul that has helped me more in over two decades of ministry than this particular relationship. I find at various points something creeping into me and I can see the characteristics of Saul. And yet I want more of the characteristics of David. I can see them creeping in. It's just that faithlessness. And that's what you begin to see with Saul. His primary deficit was not how it all worked out, his insecurity and manipulation and things we'll see this morning. It wasn't that. Those were effects. The primary problem here is he didn't have faith in God. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man returns to earth, will he find faith on the earth? You ever thought that and applied that to your own life? If Jesus appeared today and he was to walk in right here, would he find faith here at Church at the Red Door? Or maybe sit down with you at dinner with you and your spouse maybe tonight or, or otherwise and say, is there faith in this place? Have I found faith in this place? And then how would that faith be expressed? He's just not finding it with Saul. Saul does everything in the flesh. He walks, if you'll remember over the course of this last year and a half, as we've launched Church at the Red Door, Saul only walked, well, he didn't walk in, this, in the realm of the unseen. He walked according to what he could see. And as a result, he became a manipulator, a flatterer, a liar, deceitful. All those things applied to Saul. And I see those creep up in my own life at times, and I have to slay that push towards walking according to what I can see. Each step along a road of following God's anointed and appointed call in your life, each step is going to require faith because you're not going to be able to see it before you enter it. Are you with me? If you could already see it, he wouldn't need you to act. It, you, he's always going to call you into an area of maybe increased generosity, maybe an increase, what will we do if, or an increased use of your time, or stepping out into a platform of sharing Christ and making it known that you're a Jesus person. All those things can happen, but at every single step, it will require a new level of faith. Every single step. What we're going to see here in this picture of Saul is we'll see David prospering. But we'll see Saul failing again and again because he's only walking according to what he can see. And that's a tragedy, as we'll see in his own life. So we finished here last week in chapter 18, and we read the first, we finished with Jonathan and this covenantial relationship. Look, I would really encourage you to go back uh, last week if you didn't, weren't able to be here and watch that on the live stream on the archive videos uh, I, it was really impactful for a lot of you, I think. You talked about this covenant relationship is important, that we have covenantial relationships among us and how significant that is. And we finished that with verse 4 where Jonathan basically stripped himself of his armor and his sword and everything and transferred it over to David, which is a powerful expression, not too dissimilar to what we see Samuel doing with Saul. So both of them had been transferred transferred to them, both of them had already been given something, some calling. David accepts it. Saul is hiding in the baggage. Are you hiding in the baggage this morning? Don't. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, that's very important because when you begin to walk into the calling that God has for your life, yeah, you'll, you'll be stirring up a hornet's nest, but can I just tell you, people are watching, and you'll begin to garner favor for those who know the Lord. I'm telling you, people will watch. You'll be currying favor that you don't even recognize every time you walk into the calling of God. You'll, you'll encounter persecution. You'll encounter trials. You'll encounter all kinds of things, but people are watching, and as you walk in to the calling that God has on your life, people notice, and they notice David. And it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistines that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, we got a big problem here. Here, here, was, the, here was the song. You ready? 
Saul has slain his thousands. Boy, Saul's chest puffed up until line two. Verse two did not sit well. And David, his ten thousands. Now, let me tell you something. If you are a man or a woman who walks in the Spirit and your ultimate your ultimate desire is to see Jesus and his kingdom advanced, if somebody triumphs or rallies more people than you, you're going to look at that and you're still excited. It doesn't matter whether it's you. We see it all the time. You see it in sp- professional sports. They're team players. Boy, no, they, they, they're not. They're all about their st- own personal statistics. It's the college players. They're much more of a team. See, don't you love that? And people, people won't even watch professional sports anymore because they think it's all about the college teams. And then stuff comes out about the college teams that they were in it for themselves too. And then, boy, then the people just, people want it to be about the team. And yet we all struggle to make it about our individual statistics, don't we? Well, they'd seen what was happening. And Saul was significant. But David seemed to be more significant. And look at Saul's reaction. Saul became very angry. Look, if you become angry at the success of somebody else, especially in kingdom issues, there's a problem. Houston, we have a problem. If you become angry at the success somebody else is having or the fruitfulness that somebody else is having, you have a heart issue. Anytime I even feel the hint of an emotion that might suggest, oh, there's a, maybe now, I've, I've never been really in the, in the church realm in terms of, you know, local church stuff. I've always been more of a missionary and, and out with it. But I remember even, even with the ministry of links, I remember thinking about another group that came and they, they started to really have inroads in Florida and they were growing a lot of these fellowship groups in the country club. It's kind of what we did. And so what was our response? Well, we were going to try to suppress them and talk them down. No, I went down there and spoke for them. I said, you can have our magazines for nothing. You can do this. How can we help you? I mean, because I knew this story. Do you understand that? Do you you know how significant this template is for us? I'm not saying that I'm not a human being, that I may not have a momentary uh, kind of thing, all of a sudden self-preservation or territorialism or something where where I think somebody's stepping in on our territory. Forget that. I know this story too well, and I know what God's looking for, and God's looking for a team player, somebody that doesn't have to get all the credit, somebody that can sit in the background and, and do these things and doesn't, doesn't get frustrated or angry when somebody ascribes greatness to somebody else. Because trust me, it doesn't matter. That person is just a human being too, and they'll have a season, and then their season will come to an end, and they'll have to face the same thing in the future. There'll be somebody coming after them that are going to slay 10,000, and they'll be down to 1,000, and then they'll be down to 500, and maybe 100. Uh, It's the times and seasons in all of our lives. So if you can't recognize people coming behind you, you're never going to proceed forward. God can't do it. You have a heart issue. Saul got angry. He got angry can't believe that they would say this. He, he said, I became angry and it displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Do you see the immediate paranoia that, it, that comes in? You began, let me tell you something. When you're concerned about somebody else, somebody else is more beautiful than me. Or somebody else is uh, making more money than me. Or somebody else is, you know, their company's doing better than mine. My board is going to fire me if they know that our competitor is doing better than me. And you just, you go into a tailspin of paranoia and suspicion. And then you begin to orchestrate things. And that's what we see on the, my, one, of the great, one of the great shows of all time, American Greed. On CNBC, right? You see somebody that begins to rise up and then you'll, you'll resort to cooking the books. If you have to, just to make sure that it's not ascribed to somebody else that they're doing better than you're doing. That's a problem. That's a problem. And so, as a result, notice what happens. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. See, have you ever been in an atmosphere, maybe a work environment or even a church, where you can walk in and there is a tangible sense of, uh, it's a bad feeling. My girls have said that at various points. They might be in an environment, and they said, Dad, it just felt wrong. The atmosphere was bad. And, and a lot of times what, that will, what happens there is the foundation is a spirit of suspicion. 
Because when you're suspicious of other people, you clamp down. And then there's a coldness. And then there's judgmentalism that comes in. And then people begin to, uh, because out of paranoia, they begin to go on an attack to somebody that's not even attacking them. It's a real problem. And it can be systemic in any organization and especially the church. We have to be very cautious. Look, if you may think you have an issue with somebody, just go to them. Say, is there an issue here? Resolve it. But no, Saul didn't do that. He could have gone to David and he could have talked and said, look, you know, David, I'm the king here and this is going on. This has kind of been bothering me. But no, he didn't do that. He just began to make evil plans. I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29. The next verse is played out perfectly out of Proverbs 15, 29. It is played out in the next verse. The Bible says that the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. See, what happens is when you resort to fleshiness, fleshliness, and you begin to walk in the seen realm, guess what happens? Look at the next verse now of chapter 18, back to 18, verse 10. Now, it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house. While David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Proverbs 15, 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked. Now, whose problem is that? The Lord runs away from every time we sin? That's not what this is saying. It's the wicked who run from God and his presence and his economy and the way he does, the way he operates in his kingdom. The wicked are running the other way. They're running to the scene realm. David's trying to work all the way through this. We're going to see David going back to the unseen realm. No, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. See, David was terrified of even coming against Saul in any way because at this point, Saul still represented God's anointed authority. He was unwilling. As we'll see as we go forward, David was continuously unwilling to put his hand up against Saul. And yet Saul, without even a thought, became angry, an evil spirit began to rave, he became suspicious, and he began to make evil plans in his heart towards, towards David. Proverbs 15, verse 26, evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. But pleasant words are pure. We've been going through this exact last few verses in, a, in one of the CRD studies uh, during the week with the men, and it just hit me, the, the parallels here. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. And as you're going to see here, Saul begins to make plans against David. It says, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Think about that. What does that mean? The Lord is with him. That's powerful. That's powerful. The, in the Hebrew, that word prospering, it means to be circumspect. It means to, it means to uh, have discernment, to have insight, to walk in wisdom. See, we think prospering just means, well, I've made a lot of money. I made a lot of money in the market last week. Well, that's not prospering, not uh, in the Hebrew meaning here. It means to really have insight and wisdom. Everything he was doing, he was walking in wisdom. Why? Because he is still open to the unseen realm, and Saul is only walking according to what he sees. David continuously makes righteous plans, noble plans, if you will, and Saul is beginning to make evil plans. How? As we'll see going forward, Saul begins to conspire of how he's going to get David dead. Yeah, I said that. Get David dead. I mean, that's the that's I mean, that may not be proper grammar, but that's exactly what he was after. He was gonna get David dead. And we'll see it as we go forward. Why? Because David was walking with wisdom and now he was raving in the midst of his house. Look, when you whenever you time whenever you see somebody and they're in an in emotional turmoil, fighting, argumentative raving in their house, so to speak, you'll know there's fleshliness involved here. They're walking in the seen realm. Somebody who walks with just, you know, that deliberate 
humility, that willingness to, to let the Lord be uh, the, his righteousness, to let the Lord rise up and, and be the one who takes revenge and not yourself and to walk humbly before your God in contrition and not always trying to be a control freak and not always trying. Just, there's just a beautiful, isn't that, you know people like that and there's probably even people popping into your mind. And maybe it's you that's popping into your own mind. But, uh, you know, you're just a person who can walk and you're just never really, you're never flustered. You're never taken off guard. You're just always acting in humility and you're walking with grace. Saul was the antithesis of this. He was the complete opposite here. Everything he he did was just, was a nightmare. And watch what, as he goes forward here, Saul saw that he was prospering, verse 15, greatly and now he dreaded him so he's moving from suspicion to fear to dread i mean saul can't even sleep at night thinking about david all israel and judah love david no it's even making it worse and he went out and he came in before them and then saul said to david here is my older daughter mirab And I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Evil plan. He said, well, look, if I go out and kill him, everybody loves him. So let's put it off on somebody else. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds a little bit like what was going on between the Romans and some of the religious leaders during the time of Jesus. We don't want the blood on our hands, and Roman, the, the Pilate didn't want the blood on his hands, and he went and washed it, and finally the, the nation said, no, let, let his blood be on, on our hands and on our descendants. Finally, somebody stepped up and said, we'll take, the, we'll take the fall here. But at this point, no, he was even too afraid to go and say that I'm the one that's after him. I'll give you my daughter, and then I'll tell him to go out and fight the Philistines, and we'll let the Philistines kill him evil plans. And this is, this is an abominable thing for God. Let me tell you something. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you making plans? Well, of course you are. Some you may think are not even, they're neutral. These are neutral plans. Well, we're going to go, we're going to go here and we're going to go on a cruise and we're going to go on a vacation or this or that. And then we're going to go meet some friends and we're going to have dinner and they're going to do that. Those are neutral. No plans are neutral. No plans are neutral. You need to understand that. No plans are neutral. When you gave yourself to Christ, what you did, you say, I'm going to begin to be led by Jesus, not just go out and do everything I want to do, especially in a valley like this where everybody has the, a lot of people have the ability to do what? Well, it's just, we can just do kind of whatever we want. We've got the money, the time, we've got, we just do whatever we want. We never really think, well, Lord, what season is, is it in my life? And who might you want me to invite to dinner? Where might you want me to spend the summer? What might you want me to do? That's offensive that I even say that. Some would say, well, wait a minute. I don't know about that. I'm a good Christian person. I, 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 I give money to God. I give my time to God. Look, I can kind of do what I want. No, just submit your plans to God, and he will direct your steps. Submit them to him. Just say, you've got my life. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my life. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? It's a powerful thought, but they're not neutral. The plans of God, listen, wicked plans are horrible. Psalm 136 Verse 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. And he ceased to be wise and to do good. And plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He doesn't despise evil. Now, I know this is a strange definition, but when you make your own plans without consulting the Lord, it's an evil plan, even if you think it's neutral. When everything that you do is all your plans, it's a de facto evil plan. It really is. Because God said, you're my son, my daughter. I have these plans for you. We saw that in Jeremiah, right? I have plans for you. You have no idea the plans that I have for you to walk in. I'm going to give you the kind of abundant life that you could, you'll never, ever get. If you got everything you ever wanted in the world, it won't even rise to that much of the plans and the joy that you'll have by walking out my plan. And my plans for you have eternal consequences. Don't walk out your own, the plans of your own heart. Give your plans to me because I have extraordinary plans for you. Now, does that require faith? 
especially when he asks you to do something that looks like, well, that's not going to give me abundant life at all. That is not going to give me one ounce of joy. I cannot tell you what a, one of the most privileged things that I get to do in ministry is I get to know some, a lot of you are beginning to know one another. We're really becoming a family, but I get to know more of you than just about anybody in here. I have, I get to know individuals more. And so I get to find out and pastor Paul as well. And others of our pastoral staff, I get to find out really what God's doing in your life. And every time, never, never, not one time I've ever heard, well, God's doing this in my life, and this is pretty extraordinary stuff, but uh, I'm miserable. I mean, even I even see people that are going through a season of real turmoil, real struggle, but then they see, they frame it in a place of God's preparing me for it, and paradoxically, they have more joy than when they were, everything was going perfectly for them. Once they understand this template, this overlay, that God's doing something in your life, at all times, are you aware of what he's doing in your life? That's, that's the goal here. Saul was completely unaware. He's hiding the baggage, man. Really? You're hiding in the baggage? God's about to do something extraordinary in your life, Saul. Where, where's Saul? We don't even know where he is. They, had to, they actually had to pray to the Lord to find him. And the Lord said, well, he's in the baggage. You know, you know the significance of that? Is that other people may not even be aware of where you are, but God's always aware of where you are. So when you're hiding in the baggage, it may only be the Lord that knows. Your own spouse may not know that you're the one hiding in the baggage. But God does. I want you to go, if you will, Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. It's so very fascinating. We've looked at this at various points already in this Church at the Red Door. I want to put, give you a little bit different context. I want to talk to you about the plans that you're making. I want you to think more deeply about the plans that you're making today than you've ever thought before in your life. Some of you are very strategic in your planning. Some life just comes at you. Nothing really changes. You get a good sermon here or there and you get something going, but you're really not aware of the season in your life and the plans that God has for you. Listen to this. Isaiah looks out into the future and he says, look, there's a future coming and it's going to look like this. Are you ready? Here's what it's going to look. The first eight verses really are, are looking into the future and then there's a period of chronicling and here's what's really going on right now. But here's how that future is going to be enacted. Okay, you with me? So the first eight verses... Here's going to be a glorious future. There's coming today where there's going to be a glorious future. Now, Isaiah, I don't know that he understands in full what he's prophesying, but he's prophesying about King Jesus. Listen to what he says. Behold, a king will reign righteously. Have we ever had a king in all of Israel's history that's reigned righteously other than Jesus? No. We've had some that were reigned more righteously than others, but even David himself never reigned perfectly righteously. Not at all. In fact, he took a census late in his life, and it cost many, many lives. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. The eyes of those who see will not be blinded. See, these guys who walk over here in the seen realm, they're actually blind. But these guys over here that say they can't see, they actually can see. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about that. He said, so the eyes of those who see will not be blinded. Isn't that odd? The eyes of those who see will not be blinded? If they, can't, if they already see, why, do, why are they blind? It says, the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will a fool be called noble. Oh, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day. Or a rogue be spoken of as generous. Why? Because a fool speaks nonsense. His heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil, and he devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But, and here's the glorious future, are you ready? A noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. One thing with all three of my girls, if all three of my girls in one way or another 
can look into the future and make noble plans, Laura and I will be satisfied. Oh, that your children were making noble plans. Wouldn't that be great? Say, all of our kids and our grandkids are making noble plans. Wouldn't that be a glorious future for your family? My spouse is now making noble plans. Before, all he cared about was just, you know, another round of golf and another dinner and, or this or that or another, you know, just one more glorious vacation. And that was all he ever really thought about. But now he's making noble plans. And our family and the atmosphere in our family is changing dramatically because of that. Some of you men, your, your, your wives have been making noble plans for many years, and yet you haven't, and their heart's desires for you to make noble plans. But the current situation in Israel didn't look like that. Verse 9 says, Rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word. You're complacent, daughters. Within a year, a few days, you'll be troubled, O complacent daughters. For the vintage is ended It's not the vintage club. It's just the vintage. The vintage is ended, and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Now, notice, these are people who are at ease. And from their mind, they might think, well, God's favoring us because, look, we're at ease. but, But we're complacent. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yes, for the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned and the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Now, all that is a case. Now, we wouldn't say literally, although it could work out in a literal way, but we would look at that and say, look, our spiritual lives are abandoned. It's, it's, we were complacent and we just allowed the ease and the comfort of a life just to creep up on us. And now we're spiritually, we're weak. We think we have need of nothing like the church at Laodicea. We, we think we see everything, but in fact, we're weak. We're not fruitful. We're not seeing uh, our, the place in which we are come alive. We're not seeing violent impact in people around us through our missional community. Something's going on. We're playing church, but we're not having any impact. So what's the, what's the solution? How do you get to the glorious future if this is your present? Well, he tells us, and this is one of the beautiful places. Of the, this is a prophecy of Pentecost that would come 1,000 years later, about 700 years later, actually. He says, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence, and my people will live in a peaceful habitation. What does that mean? It'll mean people aren't raving in the midst of their house. They're not suspicious and paranoid and making evil plans. No, they're making as we saw in verse 8, noble plans. They'll live in secure dwellings and undisturbed resting places. And it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. This is a little bit what that means at the end, and I've taught on this before. Some of you have heard me teach on this, but I believe that's what Jesus was referring to. This was us moving under the new covenant. Right? It's where the ox and the donkey would be able to go free, even on the Sabbath. Right? Because we're under a new covenant and we're being led by the Spirit. Now, this was being written seven, over 700 years before the Spirit would be poured out. So, what's the point of all this? You want plans? Submit them to the Spirit of God. The only way to get to noble plans is that we're waiting on the Spirit to be poured out upon high. They couldn't, you can't make plans. You can't make noble plans without God's Spirit. Even if you say, well, I'm going to do this for God and this for God and this for God. Look, if it's not led by the Spirit. We had a little gathering of uh, some of the trustees and others this, this week. And, and one of the prayers by our overseer, Dr. Paul Cedar, who's, you know, pastored for 25 years and president of denominations and worked with Billy Graham and all that. And his prayer for church at the red door was pretty concise. 
Oh, that they would give opportunity for the Holy Spirit to lead. Let this, let this be a Spirit-led church. And the only way for this to be a Spirit-led church is to have a Spirit-led people. Do you want to make righteous plans? Do you want to make noble plans? Ask the Holy Spirit what He would have you do in this season. Ask Him to be, uh, begin to unpack for you what season you are in. Recognize it, understand it, walk into it, and don't let yourself be found hiding in the baggage. It's a big deal. Jeremiah 18, verse 12. It says, but they're going to say it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. Look, following your own plans, that's what I said earlier, following your own plans, are, that is evil. Those are evil plans. Again, don't think of plans as being neutral. That's the point this morning. Do not think of your plans as being neutral. Be led by the Spirit and move into noble plans. And by noble plans, you will stand in even great times of adversity. I don't care what comes against you. And some tragic things have already overcome our congregation. I hear these stories cancer and death and this and that. It doesn't matter what befalls you. If you've made noble plans, you'll stand even in the midst of a time when everybody else thinks you should be falling. By noble plans, you'll stand. And then, of course, as we said earlier, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So what are your plans this morning? Well, as, we, as we're going to finish this out in these last few minutes, look at where Saul's plans go. Do you have any plans that would in any way parallel the rest of this? Look at this, verse 20. Back to 1 Samuel 18, verse 20. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Why? Because he thought, well, I'll give her to him, that she may become a snare to him. What a plan. What a great plan, Saul. Congratulations. The king of Israel, a head taller than everybody else, handsome, good-looking, and tiny in your own eyes. So insecure, so fleshly, so... Saul, what happened to you? You were anointed. You know, when Saul was first anointed, he prophesied, and it said he became a different man. And See, he'd had these great experiences, but... There was a deficit in his heart, and it was just a faith deficit. He just didn't believe God could ever do anything with him. Well, I want, him, I want my daughter to become a snare that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. Listen to the flowery words. Then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you. More lies more manipulation, more flattery. And all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, it is trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed. He truly walked in humility, David did. Servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. And Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. I'm sorry for the graphic nature of this text. To take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law before the days is expired. And David rose up and struck two hundred just like David. And then down in verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid. Do you see the raving that's going to go on in his life? Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely. Sakal is the, the Hebrew word here again for prospering and this wisdom and this discernment and this discretionary life and this circumspect way in which he walked. And it says as a result of that, his name was highly esteemed. 
when I read this, and I remember reading this as a very young man, and I am so thankful that I, that I, I went deep into this study early in my walk. I have not walked perfectly from everything that I learned. But I will tell you, it has been a backstop for me more often than you'll know. I think very routinely about King Saul. I think about it all the time. Anytime envy would even remotely begin to earn, I recognize it, and many of you can too. And my reaction is always the same, don't become like King Saul. That's faithlessness. Those are evil plans. God, that I would become an abomination to the Lord because I would begin to in some way, because I'm going to tell you something, if evil begins to take root in your heart through envy or looking at somebody else and not wanting them to have or, or, or let me tell you, it'll be a cycle and it'll never come out of it. You'll become suspicious and fearful and all along the way, you'll be being destroyed by that root. Slay it at the moment it happens in your heart. If you have anything where you cannot celebrate good where you cannot celebrate people coming to Christ, where you cannot celebrate someone else getting the spotlight, somebody else having that moment. If you cannot celebrate that, slay that in your heart and recognize, okay, now I'm in a season of preparation. The Lord may be putting me in a situation where I have no visibility, where I have no impact, but I'm going to be humble and I'm going to honor God and I am not going to lift my hand, especially if someone in this case, if you think about it, David continued to honor Saul even though Saul wasn't even God's man, but he had been appointed by God at that stage. Recognizing spiritual authority is huge. Not taking your own revenge, not not making evil plans. So here's my challenge to us as a church. Will we as a church make noble plans? Yes, we will. Our plans are to reach into this valley and then, and then the effect that it has. Laura told me this again this morning. It continues to boggle my mind. I don't know how they do this. They're amazing eyeballs, I guess. Uh, but they, my, all, all, all of my girls, and they've done this for years, go around the desert and they look for every license plate to see if they, how many states they can find. All right? Are you with me? So it's a little game they've played, and they've done it since they were little, little, and they do it every year. And so they keep track. Very, very good records here. And they are, multiple times they found every single state license plate in all 50 United States here in the Valley. Just, those are just ones they see. And my, my daughters are not cab drivers either. I mean, they go to, tra- you can see, they got worn out streets to Trader Joe's, to Costco, and, you know, just various places that they go that they need to go, but they're not all over the place. And this year, already, this season, only one, West Virginia, 49 out of 50, only one left. Do you have anybody from West Virginia here? <laughs> and if so, do you have your car with you? Maybe we'll get somebody on live stream from West Virginia. Please come see us. We need you before the season is out. Does that not boggle your mind? I said, Laura, we were talking about this as we were driving to church this morning. I said, can you think of anywhere else in the world? I said, maybe L.A. or something, but would you ever be able to spot them? Can you imagine all 50, just the ones they see? What are our plans? Well, we do think we have an impact. Why? We're in a place where everybody comes from everywhere. What would be a noble plan in that? To set up a lighthouse, a watchtower where we could set something up and that people would be drawn? I mean, if we get this property where we are just down the street, there are going to be two five-star hotels that are going to be started to be built. And thousands of people will be driving up and down. The very property that we have, 4,000 cars drive by this place every hour. 4,000 cars an hour drive right by this place. And they're going to see church at the red door. And they won't know why they're there. They're going, to, they're going to be drawn as if by a force to pull in that parking lot. And they're going to come and we're going to have a message of redemption and life and wholeness. And many who rave in their house today will not rave after they've met Jesus. Those are noble plans as a church. But no church 
is anything, a church is made up by its people. Unless we can make noble plans individually, we can attend church at the Red Door and everybody's always welcome. But we need enough people that are making, personally submitting themselves to the plans that God has for them. And if it attaches them to us and we become a family, noble individual plans, noble congregational plans, we will stand and we will be fruitful and God will be honored. Now tell me who doesn't want to be a part of that. I do. I want to spend how many ever years left I have on this planet making noble plans. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We, I thank you for these stories. Father, I am so indebted to the story of Saul and David, the beautiful juxtaposition to see a man who lived by faith and see a man who hid in the baggage. Father, that I would not be a man who hides in the baggage, that there would not be women out here that are hiding in the baggage or men that were hiding in the baggage. But they will say, look, I don't know if, what the Lord can do with me, but here's my life, and I give it to you, Lord. Now tell me, what season am I in? My season of preparation? Season of execution? Am I in a place of visibility at this season or not? But it doesn't matter, Lord. What are your plans for me, and why am I here? What am I doing on the earth, Lord? And then you guide me, and I give you my life. Lord, if that's our prayer, Father, we thank you. For all those who would pray that, I just ask you right now, and if I could have the prayer team come down uh, just to my lower right, maybe this, maybe this morning's a place where you just want to go down and you just want to make a kind of a confessional moment where you want to go down and I just, it doesn't have to be long, you just come down to someone that, who's down, one of our prayer people down here and just say, look, I'm, today I want to change from hiding in the baggage to making a public proclamation that, no, I'm not going to hide in the baggage anymore. I'm going to let the Lord orchestrate my life. I want noble plans to, to define me, my family, my, my marriage, my kids. Lord, help us devise noble plans. God hears those. Don't think he doesn't. Lord, I know you'll hear those pleas and those cries. You love a contrite heart. You love a broken spirit. You love it because you say, that's someone I can use. So, Lord, we're grateful for this morning, your word. It's cathartic, Lord. It's medicinal. It, it comes in and it completely changes the way we view reality. It is truly living and active, and for that we are forever grateful. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, we love you here at Church of the Red Door. Have a great week. Uh, hopefully we'll have some news for you next week. And uh, tell all the people outside that are here for 930 service that they're... Uh, <laughs> They're either early or late, depending on how they look at it. All right, we love you.